Galatians 3, we're going to be going through verses 1 through 14 this morning. I was working at a uh, coffee shop in Hudson, Ohio on Friday when an older woman, uh, she walks over and she strikes up a conversation with me. She said she noticed my, uh, my Reformation study Bible sitting on my, on my table. I was going to be doing some work. And she said that she just so happened to be studying Martin Luther for a book that she was writing. Um, I soon realized God had other plans for me than studying uh, that morning because this woman wanted to talk, and, uh, which was awesome, by the way, um, and made even more sense when she told me that she used to host a talk show back in the day called Schmoozing with Susan, right? <laughs> I was like, Susan, you had me at schmooze. I'm in. Let's chat, you know? Uh, so the, the convo, it was, it was long. It took some turns before it turned to God, um, and she told me she thought God was probably not perfect. That was how she opened one of her, uh, one of her sort of, uh, you know, views, worldviews that she had on God. She said God was probably not perfect because he used men like Martin Luther, who was, you know, the father of the Protestant Reformation. He used men like Martin Luther who had some pretty significant stains uh, on, his, on his life. And I said, yeah, I go, that's, uh, believe it or not, that's, that's kind of the story of, of the Bible. God uses men and women, uh, men who have just horrendous uh, track records, and, and he uses these men and women uh, for their good and his glory. And, uh, and then she mentioned uh, Adolf Hitler and basically said, uh, hey, those atrocities he committed were under God's watch too. And I'm thinking, cool, now she's, she's gone Hitler, you know, on the, on the conversation, you know. Um, but she made some really good points um, as we were talking. She had some really good questions. She had some great observations. She made some good points. So I you know, I just listened. She said this. She said she believed that some people were like glasses of water that someone puts a drop of food coloring in and it just fills the glass. And instead of a, you know, a crystal clear glass of water, now you have it, you have it stained. They become stained is what she said. So in her thinking, every time a person does something good, she said, it helped unstain and purify the water. And so I said, hey, I go, that's actually a great analogy uh, because God actually made everything perfect and clear. And when we sinned against him, uh, we became stained with sin. I said, but he sent Jesus to purify the water because our good deeds don't really work as a water purification system. That's all I had, you know, in the moment. Um, She didn't really seem to like that, that answer too much. So the conversation changed, and I asked the name of her book, and she said, and I, and I kid you not, um, in line with everything that we're going to be talking about, she said, uh, it's called The Circumcision Decision. <laughs> Again, when you're a preacher, you're always looking for things that are going to feed into what you're talking about, because you're just talking about stuff all the time, and uh, God gave me a doozy on Friday. I mean, that's all I have to say. Um, but it was great talking to her. It was a great opportunity to talk to her. And it was interesting because I was, as I was thinking, uh, this is where the Galatian church was at, kind of where at my friend Susan uh, is at. They were deserting the gospel um, for a distorted gospel that said you needed to make the circumcision decision in order to be saved. And so up to this point, as we've been going through the book, Paul's been saying, no, fellas. He said, there's only one way a person can be saved and justified, and that's by being declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he said. He said, anything we attempt to add 
to or replace the gospel with ends up being no gospel at all. I remember Melissa and I went to this restaurant one time, and I mean, I, I was, it, it looked amazing, and I was like, oh man, the menu had these burgers advertised, I'm going to get myself a burger, and so I ordered a burger, and I, I get it back, and it looks great, I pull the bun off, and it's one of those portobello mushroom burgers, right? What I didn't realize, it was a vegetarian restaurant, and I was super, super, I'm still super bummed about that. <laughs> like, I'm never going to get that burger back, Right? Um, because in my estimation, a portobello burger is not a burger, you know, at the end of the day. Um, well, I got a lot of, I got, thanks for the consensus on that, you guys. So at the end of chapter two last week, Paul shared the story of how he rebuked and then he realigned the apostle Peter because Peter had fallen out of step with the gospel. What had happened is he had stopped eating with Gentile Christians because certain Jews who liked who he liked to hang with, didn't believe that Gentiles had actually been adopted into the faith. And they believed that because Gentiles ate food that wasn't seen as being clean uh, to Jews. And actually, they were, they were uncircumcised too. So that was another knock uh, against them. They didn't, they didn't abide by Jewish law. So Paul says, look, if a person could actually be saved by keeping those laws and getting circumcised, what did he say at the end of the last chapter? He said, then Christ died for no purpose. He said, it's like we're taking this act of grace, this work of grace that Christ does for our salvation. We're just throwing it out the window. That's what he said, because it's all a work of grace. So today, man, we're just going to continue this theme. And what you're going to see week to week is that we're going to, a lot of these ideas are going to be overlapping with one another, but we're going to have such a full picture of the gospel. And that's the hope in the prayer, is that we're going to have a full picture of what it means to be justified by faith, and not just believing something, but actually living it out, which is what Paul begins to discuss uh, today. And what he does is he reminds the Galatians of two important steps in the life of a believer. Number one, hearing with faith, right, which was the first step, and then secondly, living by faith. This is another way of saying what we like to call justification and sanctification. But Paul begins by saying, what is the way that you were justified? Well, he says it was hearing with faith. Let's pick up in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. He says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Well, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you not being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's just stop right there for now. So what's going on with, with Paul right here? I mean, is he just, man, has he just worked himself up into another lather? Is he, is he just resorting to name-calling with the Galatian church? Well, no, actually, he's, he's calling on the Galatians to recall what they knew and now how they must live based on what they knew and what they heard. It's the same call that all Christians are faced with all the time. Why do we gather on Sundays? 
Why do we gather in community groups? Why do we open our Bible? Because we're trying to recall the things that we first believed so that we can live the life that we now live that we just sang about a minute ago. Imagine if I read a letter to Substance Church today from the Apostle Paul, and he called us foolish, and he called us bewitched. I don't know, if you're old enough, when you hear the word bewitched, all you're doing is thinking of that old TV show from the 1970s. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, I shouldn't even go through. Melissa begged me not to do that, but she's not here today. <laughs> but here's my question. If we got a letter like that, and it immediately started with, what's wrong with you guys? Are you so foolish? In other words, are you so stupid? Are you bewitched? Have you been deceived? Has someone cast a spell over you? Are you under the charm of somebody? That's what he's in effect saying. Would, what, what, would, what would be the first thing that would sort of surface in your mind or in your heart? Would you feel defensive about that? Like, hey, Paul, go easy on me. Maybe you'd feel angry. Like, this is ridiculous. Who does he think he is? Maybe it would concern you. Well, I don't know. Maybe we've got to listen to what he's saying. Read the rest of the letter, Ronnie. And maybe you'd be just indifferent. Yeah, I just, I'm good. I'm good where I'm at. I'm not really too concerned with Paul's assessment of our church. Here's my question. Would you think that the thing you were actually getting wrong was the gospel? Or would you narrow it down to something you considered more trivial, right? Because here's the thing. You could say circumcision, which again, which is what the Galatian church was doing, adding to the gospel. You could say circumcision was kind of trivial, right? But Paul doesn't treat it like that, does he? He doesn't treat it like that. So Paul jogs their memory and reminds them that it was through the, the preaching of the gospel that it led them to faith. Romans 10, 17 reminds us, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So what do we know about preaching? Well, we know that gospel preaching is how the eyes of a person's heart are open to Christ crucified and then hearing with faith which is how Paul describes what happened to the Galatians, is how the gospel becomes alive in a person's heart, right? So here's what didn't happen when the Galatians first heard the gospel and believed. They didn't originally hear it, believe with faith, and say, sweet, now tell us what's next so we can seal the deal. That's not what they did. They just believed the gospel. It's like when your baby was born, for those of you who have had that experience, they didn't get born, I don't even know if that's the right way to phrase it, but they didn't get born and say, cool, I'm born. So, hey, mom and pops, why don't you lay out some next steps because this can't be all there is to it. I know babies can't talk. I know that. It's a horrible illustration. It's all I got today, right? This is why we believe that any time... Listen, that there's a breakdown in our beliefs or our lives fall out of alignment, we call this a gospel issue, right? Everything is a gospel issue. And we need to ask the questions Paul asks in verses two through six. Let me read those again. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Since, so this is what he's saying. Since salvation begins as an act of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, why on earth would you think that an act of the flesh, like circumcision, could possibly be what sustains your righteous standing before God? 
Are you really attempting to gain favor with God by cutting your flesh and suffering needlessly? Sorry if that's a little graphic. What about the miracles you've seen, Paul's asking? Did the power for those come by works? Or did it come by hearing through faith? So there's this, there's this part of us that is always wanting to doubt the work of God through faith alone, right? We always think it can't just be that, right? Like what the Galatians are falling into is not unusual for any of the church, which is why we're constantly calling ourselves back to recall the fact that all of this is a work of Christ alone. That's why we probably sing the song in Christ alone too many times, because it just absolutely uh, just encapsulates like everything that we know and believe and understand from Scripture. You know, this is what cracks me up. For some of you, sometimes I'll come up to some of you guys and I'll ask you how you're doing. And the first thing you say to me is you start telling me why you haven't been to church in three weeks. Right? I mean, do you think that's what I'm thinking? Maybe I am. <laughs> I'm not. I promise I'm not. Um, and if I was, let's just do a hypothetical here. And if I was, it's because I love you. And coming to our family gathering is vital to your spiritual health and growth as a disciple of Jesus. But brothers and sisters, it does not save you. It sanctifies you. But you see, just that's one ridiculous example on how we, like, that, that rises up in some of you, right? Oh no, it's been a while. Is, is God still pleased with me? Am, am I still in the family of God? Does me stepping over the threshold from South Street into the warehouse, does that somehow justify me before God? It doesn't. Titus 3, 5 through 6 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So to prove his point, you know what Paul does? Paul brings it all the way back to Abraham, the patriarch, right? The father of the Jewish nation. Basically, he's saying it's true that God commanded Abraham to be circumcised as a covenantal sign between him and God. But God never led with that. God originally called Abraham to trust him by faith. So Paul points out that circumcision is not what makes you a son of Abraham. It's hearing with faith like Abraham. So we're not only saved by faith. We're not only saved that moment that we hear the gospel message preached. And in that moment, we realize our sin. We repent. And by faith, we put our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not only just that. It's not only that we're saved by faith, but that we live by the faith that saves us. And this is what Paul gets into as we pick up in verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident, he says, that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So when you think of the word curse, what comes to mind for a, a lot of you, especially you that have, that have or have had small kids or work with kids, you probably learned your doctrine of curses from the, you know, the theology of Walt Disney, right? When we, we, we watch those princess movies, inevitably one of them always falls under a curse. You're like, those are only old school princess movies, Ronnie. If you would watch some of the newer ones, you would understand that they've changed the game a little bit. Yeah, I'm up on that stuff. I just want you guys to know that. But what happens here is that Paul is trying to make a point about what kind of state that the world was descended into when Adam and Eve sinned and what kind of state that we are actually born into every single one of us no matter our nationality no matter our parents no matter our religious background no matter the churches that our families have been members of throughout the years we all we are all born under a curse he quotes from Deuteronomy 27:26 that's what he quotes in verse 10 to say look those who rely on works of the law are still under the curse of the law that you were born into if you don't keep the law that you're relying on perfectly. So let me just keep this really simple and sum this up. If you want to earn your salvation apart from faith, it's cool. All you have to do is never break one of God's laws and you are aces. You're good. Everything's good. The problem, Paul says, is that nobody can do it. That's the issue. That's the fine print, right? Nobody is justified by the law, it says in verse 11, because it's evident that it cannot be done. I mean, man, you only have to take a cursory glance through the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 if you believe that that's not true. The first commandment, what is it? It's this. It's you shall have no other gods before me. It's the very first commandment. Anybody who believes they don't need faith in Christ to be righteous before God has already broke the first commandment because they've elevated themselves as God and Savior over their life. So by not believing this, you've broke the first commandment. You're already out. It's self-fulfilling. And you know what's interesting is that many of us probably accept that we have broken some commandments, that we have broken some of God's laws. Here's my question, though. Do we subconsciously live, though, by our own moral code? So we take the Ten Commandments and we go, man, that's an old document. I was supposed to memorize that at some point in Sunday school. I didn't. But since you don't get a pass-fail, it didn't matter. We move that to the side. And we create, without any really recollection of what God's law is, we, we end up creating our own moral code, right? Almost like a revised Ten Commandments that you feel like you keep. And you, you know you feel like you keep it because you also simultaneously judge others that don't keep that moral code that you sort of elevated above the Ten Commandments. We do that all the time, especially in church, right? We don't do it as often in the world because our expectations are that the world is going to live as the world does. Now, we don't always do that, which is wrong. The world is going to live the way the world lives we should not be surprised by that. We should not be happy about it. We should pray for those that we know that are living as the world lives, but it shouldn't surprise us. What happens is, is we come up with funny rules for the church. So we say, yeah, those 10 commandments, right? I'm not murdering, I'm not, I'm not. 
Again, of course, if we go to Jesus' sermon in Matthew, he kind of shows us that we are. But even when we ignore that, sometimes we build our own laws. We create our own moral code. And so we pick out little things. Well, they're not doing that or they're doing that. And so then we judge others for not keeping our Ten Commandments. We're actually going to get into that a little bit down the road here in Galatians. That's why Paul says that the law is not of faith. That's what he says in verse 12. If you lean on God's law or a moral code, then you have to live perfectly by that law or code. And since no one lives perfectly by any law, they are cursed if they rely on the law to be perfect before God because God just demands perfection. Do you ever have anybody say, nobody's perfect? Nobody's perfect, Ronnie. I've had people say that to me. Man, nobody's perfect. Why are you coming down on me? Why are you calling me on this particular life pattern? Nobody's perfect. I know. It's a bummer. But it's also why Christ had to die. So we don't our offense isn't that, hey, I'm being called out for something I'm doing that puts me in the category of not being perfect. The offense is when we think, no, 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 no. I shouldn't have to be told whether I'm being perfect or imperfect because I'm living up to a moral code or I'm living up to a couple of the commandments. And when you tell me that, it reminds me that Christ had to die and I'm not living like somebody who lives like Christ had to die. Does that make sense? That's why we get offended by those things when we're called out on sins, kind of like the Galatians are being called out on right now. But this is the good news. This is the good news. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. The law required that everyone who violated it must be executed and then suspended from a tree. And so Christ bore our curse by hanging on a tree so that we might not have to. So that in exchange, we might receive blessings promised to Abraham all the way back then when God told Abraham, through you, all of the nations will be blessed. Not just the Jewish nation, but all the nations. And he says, so on the basis of that, the righteous person, the righteous, he says, shall live by faith there in verse 11, which is actually a verse that comes from the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk or however you want to pronounce that. The righteous shall live by faith. It was this line that actually sparked the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was a monk. He was trying to keep all of these religious rules and laws, and it was just, I mean, to paraphrase, it was absolutely bumming him out. It was destroying him. And he finally opens his Bible, and he reads this in Romans. He reads, the righteous shall live by faith. And it changed everything for him. Wait a minute, by faith? I mean, all these things I've been doing as a monk, all these moral codes, these 10 commandments that I've been just battering and bloodying and bruising my body to keep, that's not cutting it? It was revolutionary for him. It should be revolutionary to us, even if we haven't gone to the lengths that Martin Luther went to. The righteous shall live by faith. So what's interesting is that when we go to the first part of the chapter, he's talking about hearing by faith. But then he gets into this part about what it means to live by faith. Paul is saying the righteous shall live by faith, not just be justified by faith, but he says live by faith. 
So our faith is a living faith, right? It's not merely an intellectual assent. It's not saying, okay, I can close my eyes and I can quote back to you what justification by faith means. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad if you can do that. I want all of you, if you guys can't do that after this, I mean, literally, you guys have all just had your earbuds in, in your ears the whole time and somebody gives you a trigger point to laugh when I say something stupid. I mean, that's just what's been happening the last five weeks. But we should all be able to know what justification by faith is. It's not merely an intellectual assent, though. It's not merely being able to define it. It's do you delight in it? It's do you delight in the Jesus of your faith? Because here's the question for us, right? To bring it a little home. How do you live for anything? So when we say living out our faith, sometimes that feels like we don't know what that means. Well, what does it mean to live anything out for you? Here's my example. Let's say you live for the Ohio State Buckeyes. I'm going there, all right? What does that mean to live for the Ohio State Buckeyes? Well, if you could just rattle off some stats, you, you actually might convince someone you, you know something about them. I've, I've done that a few times, right? But if you never watch a game, if you feel no emotion, whether they win or lose, if you have no heart for any of the players, you'd be a lot like this guy named Ronnie Martin, okay? But even if all that were true, follow me here, you'll only ever be a fan of the Buckeyes. I know you guys wear the jerseys during the game and all that. You're still just a fan, right? A living faith is not simply being a fan of Jesus. Paul wasn't calling the Galatian church to say, dude, it's been a long time since you guys have been to a game. Are you guys really fans? That's not what he was saying. It's not merely being a fan. It's being adopted into a family. It's like actually becoming a Buckeye. Can you imagine that? I know this illustration is going totally haywire right now. So if the righteous live by faith, then what does a faith-lived life look like then? We defined, we defined it here just a minute ago. It's not being a fan. It's being somebody who embodies the love and the desire and the devotion of the person of whom they now identify with. So for us, that's Jesus Christ. So what does a faith-lived life actually look like? Here's three things, and we'll finish. Number one, and we see this from the passage, it means that we are guarding against foolishness, right? Here's my question to you guys. What if somebody creeps in at substance and starts questioning some of the things that we teach, right? What if it's a person that's a lot more likable and compelling than me, right? Which is, would not be easy for, or not be hard for that to happen, right? How, how, will you, how will you guard against that? Will you guard against that? Will you be easily charmed? Paul tells his his protege, a guy named Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy, he says this to Timothy. He said, hey, dude, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love, the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, he says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. How do we guard that deposit so that we are guarding against foolishness? Well, we need to know God's word and we need to gather with God's people. Those are just two of the ways that we do that. What we learned today is that trusting in works of the law leads to stupidity. Oh, foolish Galatians, 
Another way to translate that is, oh, stupid Galatians. I love that, man. That's how I, that's how I would have said it, right? But I love that because it sums up what's really going on, which is that trusting and works of the law actually leads to stupidity. What's amazing when we look at the life of Abraham, who Paul talks about here, is that he made incredibly foolish and stupid and unfaithful mistakes, right? He didn't wait for God. He didn't let his faith lead him when he couldn't see what God was doing. Remember what Abraham did? Man, he went ahead. God had promised him and his wife Sarah a child, but he went ahead and he had a child with someone else because it had been a long time and this dude was like 100, right? So he has a child with somebody other than his wife. Why? Because he thought, hey, you know what? Let me just kickstart this thing. Let me fulfill God's promise. It was foolish and it caused a lot of pain. Did God fail Abraham because it had been years and there was still no baby? No. Is God failing you because he is not falling in line with your timing? So you've developed certain moral codes to bring yourself a little bit closer to what you feel like God has stepped back from? Guarding against foolishness is one of the ways that we actually grow in faithfulness. Well, Ronnie, what about things that God isn't explicit about? Well, that's when we step out in faith, not foolishness. You know what discernment is? Discernment is making good decisions about things the Bible doesn't give us answers for. Another word for that is called wisdom. You know how we gain wisdom? We ask people around us. We open up our lives to other people. When we have questions we don't know how to answer, we say, hey, can you help me out with this? Well, Ronnie, what if all of that doesn't work out? What if things don't work out? Well, we live by faith. Because just because we can't see something working out today doesn't mean God doesn't have a way that it's going to work out tomorrow the way he has designed it to work out. So this means that we wait. And while we're waiting, we're walking. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Things aren't as they should, right? For we walk by faith, not by sight. We're going to sing about that in a minute. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body. We would rather be at home with the Lord, he says. So whether, this is what he says, look, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. So guarding against foolishness is one of the ways that we grow in faith and we grow in courage. And that what was not happening with the Galatian church here. So a faith-lived life looks like guarding against foolishness. Secondly, it's functioning as a curse-free person. You once lived under a curse, right? Isn't that crazy when you think about it that way? You once lived under a curse. What will you do now that you're not? That's the Christian life. What will you do now that you're not living under the curse? Well, we're going to want to function and have fellowship with the very things and people that freed us. We're going to want to work and worship and rest like a person who has been delivered from the curse, right? Paul reminded the Corinthians again in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then he says this, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
That's what the Galatians weren't doing. Why can we do that? Well, he says right here, he says, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So every time the Galatians went towards things like circumcision, they were mutilating themselves as a way to become justified before God and justified before this sect of Jewish people that deemed that righteousness. Oh my gosh. And they were laboring in vain at that point. A way to think about it is like this. When you work, let's just take that as an example, do you groan? Do you groan when you work because you see it as, as a punishment? Because you see your work as something you have to get through to pay the bills? Or do you see it as something that God is redeeming? Because see, somebody who is functioning now as a curse-free person starts to see everything through a redemptive lens. Now look, it's true that we live in a world that is under the curse of sin, but we function as people redeemed from the curse of sin. Yes, we live under it practically, but not ultimately. That changes how we live a life of faith. So ask yourself this question, what remains unredeemed in your life? In other words, what areas of your life are not under new ownership? Because when you discover that, it probably means it's an area that's operating as your functional savior. Because that's what circumcision had become to the Galatians. That now was their functional savior, not Christ. Maybe you have not rejected something that needs to be turned from in your life. Maybe the things that God has redeemed in your life now you are ignoring. All of these questions, they illustrate to us if we are functioning as a cursed or a cursed free person. And if we are in Christ, we are a curse free person. And finally, a faith lived life looks like this it looks like remembering that Christ proves that God is not a liar. What were the Galatians not believing? Well, they were not believing that Christ was enough. They were believing in a Jesus plus something gospel. In a sense, they were saying Christ's death didn't do the trick. If Christ's death was for nothing, then God's a liar because he said it was for everything. Romans 15, 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, that's Abraham, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So when we fall back into what the Galatians fall back into, when we've elevated moral codes and our own version of circumcisions above everything else, we are not glorifying God for his mercy anymore. But we have a living faith, don't we? We have a living faith because we have a Savior who is alive and not dead. So here's how we end this morning. Jesus has called you to die this morning. Paul was calling on the Galatians to die to the things that they had once died for, but they needed to recall those things. He has called you to die, and you can die because he has died. A disciple of Jesus dies to their desire to be their own God. That's what the Galatians were doing. 
Anytime a functional Savior rears its ugly head and says, you need to do this, we have a new God in the room. The reason why we can live a life of faith is because we have a living thing to put our faith in rather than living for things of a lesser glory. And so that exists for all of you this morning. That exists for me. We take stock of those things in our life that are eating away at us. Moral codes, whatever they may be, and we bring them to the throne of grace and we say, God, I welcome you to take this from me because this thing has me enslaved. This thing has me wrapped around its finger. What's really hard about that is some of these things are things that you really like. They're very enjoyable. They give you a lot of comfort. They may provide you with a sense of false hope. But according to Paul, according to Paul here, it's us bringing ourselves back under the curse that Jesus so graciously and mercifully went to the cross to remove from us. Let's not pull it back on. Let's help each other. Let's go to each other. Let's be a community that is transparent, that is vulnerable with one another, that says, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I was struggling when Brock Thompson uh, pulled up last night. I struggle with stuff. I was struggling. And he said, I can sense that you're struggling. Well, how could he sense that? Well, because the same Holy Spirit that lives in Brock lives inside of me. I don't know how to explain that. But sometimes you sense things. And for some reason, God brought us together like this and a kind word from a fellow brother changed my night. That's the love of Christ. And it strengthened my faith. That's the love of Christ. Can we be that for one another? Let's pray. God, thank you, thank you Lord, that even when we're foolish and we are bewitched and we fall into these things that call us to put our trust in other functional saviors, God, you have mercy on us. You have us here. We're all sitting in these chairs. It's not an accident that we're here, that we're hearing these words, that we're hearing God's word to us. We're hearing the only life-changing words that have ever been written Our hearts and minds have been set on these words this morning. And God, I pray that they would change us. God, I pray that they would call us back to a living faith. I pray that they would call us into community so that we can be we can be that help and that hope for a brother or sister who needs that help and that hope because they feel like Living by faith right now feels really scary. And it feels very hard because everything in their life might look like the opposite is happening, that God is failing. So, Lord, we need encouragement. Lord, we need to recall what our call is that those things that we heard by faith, we now live in faith. Sometimes our faith is weak. That's okay. You still work with us in our weak faith our strong faith, and in our medium faith because you're good and you're understanding. 
and you're full of mercy and grace. So thank you for these truths, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.